Before we read our text, let's pause for one minute and and pray together. Let's pray. Father, would you please uh, show your power now uh, by your spirit, by giving us uh, eyes to see the glory of yourself shining brightly in the face of Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear your word, uh, hearts to receive it, wills to obey it. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now this is one of the few places in Pauline corpus, in Paul's writings, where he, he writes about himself. He speaks autobiographically and... He is remarkably candid, isn't he? Take a look again at verse 3 and how he describes himself in his first coming to Corinth. Uh, He says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Uh, My speech and my message were not marked with plausible words of wisdom. Paul is saying admittedly, I came to you as a weak man with a seemingly unimpressive message. He he did not have an awe-inspiring ministry. In fact, if you were operating with some of the convictions of the Corinthian Christians, you would not want Paul to be your pastor. There was no aura of greatness or sophistication when Paul spoke, no glamour of celebrity to distinguish him from other competitors. Paul's description of himself defied the expectations of the day and it defies some of the expectations in our own day. You see, because our culture, not all that different from the culture of Corinth, loves big personalities. We value charisma. And if we're really honest, we like a good performance and we love to be entertained. And read in that light, Paul's description of himself is a bit jarring. It certainly would have been to the Corinthians reading this letter. Some of them were not impressed at all with the Apostle Paul. And that's because when he showed up in Corinth, he was a complete wreck. His body was bruised and, and battered from cycles of mob violence committed against him. He was scared. A bit jumpy, we might say. And you can't blame him given what he has recently experienced. You can read about it in the book of Acts. Just a quick summary here. When he went to Iconium in Acts chapter 14, he was almost stoned by the mob. When he went on to Lystra, the mob did in fact stone him. And then he was dragged outside the city gate and left there for dead. When he made it to Philippi in Acts 16, his preaching incited another riot. And he and Silas were imprisoned. And then in Thessalonica, the same thing happened, except this time Paul escaped to Berea, and then in Berea, guess what? 
there's another riot, and so Paul is sent on his way. And so by the time Paul gets to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he, he's fearful. I mean, you get a window here into his humanity, don't you? He's, he's scared, and he's being honest about it, because everywhere he goes, when he opens his mouth, some people get saved, and that's great, but then he pays the price. Right? He gets beaten for it. He gets physically hurt. Who wouldn't be uh, intimidated by this? So, Paul, by his own admission, was an unimpressive man with a seemingly foolish message. So the question is, why then should the Corinthians value Paul's ministry? What is it about ministry after the Pauline paradigm that should be imitated, that should be followed? Uh, I think Paul will answer those questions in his, his summary of his own ministry here in these five verses. So let's begin in verses 1 and 2 by looking, first of all, at his message, what he said. Verses 1 and 2. Notice, notice first of all, how Paul puts it negatively and positively, and, and tuck that away in your mind, because that's going to be the pattern he follows throughout these verses. So in verse 1 he says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He was, he was resolved to not rely upon rhetoric. He had no interest in ooing and awing his listeners, manipulating them and playing on their emotions. He had no interest in swaying people with sophisticated speech. No interest whatsoever in tailoring his message to the style the Corinthians preferred if it would corrupt the message that he was proclaiming. See, the culture of the day was a form of entertainment, really. They liked to listen to orators, these public speakers who would go to these public places or perhaps lecture halls, and, and they relied upon recognizable patterns of speech, pitching, uh, plausible words of wisdom, to all who would hear and perhaps pay for the performance. And the people, the people valued someone who could turn a phrase. Right? They valued somebody who had a way with words. Somebody who could captivate your mind with their speech. But you see, Paul refused to package his preaching in the rhetoric of the day, and he made no attempts to sound wise by worldly standards. That's the negative part of his message. But then positively in verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So you see, his refusal to dress up his preaching with rhetorical flair and worldly wisdom is directly connected to the message he preached. Because the message that Paul preached was not designed to draw attention to the speaker. The message that Paul was called to preach was not a message that was intended to ooh and awe the audience with the rhetorical skills of the preacher. The message that Paul was called to preach is to shine a light on and draw the focus on, to put all of the attention on Christ and his cross. Jesus Christ and his work and his life and death and resurrection. Now, I want to 
I want to reflect just for a moment on Paul's own summary of his, his message in verse 2. The words there, Christ and him crucified. Now let's make, let's, let's make sure we understand this. Paul is not saying, when I came to Corinth, I decided to mix things up. And I decided to try something new, to turn a new leaf and to see how this would go. I committed myself to only speaking about Christ and him crucified. That, that's not what Paul is saying here. Rather, Paul is saying, this is the heart of my message. This is the substance. This is the pattern of my preaching. Every time I open my mouth to preach, I preach Christ and him crucified. Now, lest we think that leads to you know, something that's simplistic or reductionistic, just keep in mind that this is the same Paul that wrote the rest of 1 Corinthians. <laughs> and of course, what's Paul going to do? Paul's going to go on to, to deal with a host of what we might call practical issues. He's going to talk about division in the church. Lawsuits, believers taking one another to court. Uh, he's going to talk about singleness and marriage and sexuality and divorce. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts, matters surrounding the Lord's table, all of these issues. And not once does he say in his letter answering these questions, I'm sorry, Corinthians, I know you've got questions about these issues, but I, I really, I, I, I've made this prior commitment to only speak about Christ and him crucified. And what I've committed to speaking about really has nothing to do with those things. Paul never does that. What does he do instead? He takes up these issues and over and over and over and over again, he is repeatedly drawing the Corinthians, as he does in all of his other letters as well, drawing believers back to Christ and the cross and saying, here are all of the divinely provided resources you need to live faithfully for God in the face of all of these predicaments. He's saying, don't, don't you understand who Jesus Christ is and the significance of his cross? Don't you understand the implications of your union with him and his death and his resurrection? And what that means for your divisions, for your court cases, for your squabbles, for your pride, for your sexual immorality. Paul is always bringing it back to Christ and him crucified. And so Paul's consistent message as he deals with various subjects is to preach Christ and his cross. And friends, that is, a, that is the mark of faithful preaching, faithful pastoral ministry, because this is what our souls all truly need, isn't it? It's not self-help we need. It's Christ we need. It's, it, it's having our minds and our hearts and our lives sunk more deeply into the reality of Jesus Christ and what he has done for his people that we so desperately need. And so it's what you ought to hear from this pulpit Sunday after Sunday. It's what you ought to hear in every pulpit that claims to be Christian. The word of God pointing you relentlessly to Christ, the son of God given to deliver us from our sins. And so Paul's message was fixated on the person of Christ and his work for us on the cross. That's the message. Then secondly, let's think about Paul's manner in verses 3 and 4. Again, 
catch the negative positive pattern negatively in verse 3. Take a look at it with me. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. So Paul's confidence for change, and this is a word for preachers, this is a word for Sunday school teachers, for Bible lesson leaders, for small group leaders, for anyone of us called to share God's word with another for their good. Here's a word we need to keep in mind. Your confidence for change, first of all in yourself and in the lives of others, does not rest on the power of your own reason or rhetoric. Your ability to turn a phrase. Our confidence for change is not found in us. It's found outside of ourselves. We'll see that even more clearly in just a minute. But here, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that that they were converted, savingly united to Jesus Christ, bound together in the bonds of love. The church was planted And the result of a ministry, as the result of a ministry, characterized by what? Fear, trembling, and weakness. It had none of the marks of culturally plausible wisdom, sophistication, or success. It was an unimpressive ministry with a seemingly foolish message. Right, so that, that, that raises a question, doesn't it? How do you end up with Corinthian Christians and a Corinthian church, right? How on earth did this fearful, trembling, weak man, whose speech was jarring to the minds of his hearers, whose message sounded like utter foolishness, ever plant a church in the pagan city of Corinth? Well, take a look with me at verse 4. If Paul's confidence for change does not rest in his abilities to reason and argue and speak, where does it lie? He states it positively in verse 4 in these terms, in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Here's how Corinthians became Christians. Here's how people were fundamentally changed from the inside out forever, in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He isn't saying that he preached a spirited message and by the you know, sheer force of his personality and the power of his words that people were one. He means that as he preached the scriptures, as he proclaimed Christ and him crucified, as he made an open statement of the truth, as he applied the truth about Jesus to minds and hearts, God the Holy Spirit accompanied the word preached and manifested divine power so that through the means of the folly of what Paul preached, people's lives were changed forever. It's amazing, isn't it? In the hands of the Spirit, the preaching of weak, feeble Paul was the external instrument of irresistible grace that affected new life. It came with power, Paul says. Darkened minds were illumined. Deaf ears were opened. Dead hearts were revived. Blind eyes were given sight to behold the 
glory of God radiating in the face of Jesus Christ. And in the end, Paul is saying, I didn't do it. God the Holy Spirit did it. I think there's a bunch of examples from church history of what we're talking about here. But I want to just share one for, uh, with you. It's the conversion story of Charles Spurgeon. Some of you might know this. You know, as a young man, one Sunday morning, he, he set out uh, to go to the church where he normally attended. There was a severe snowstorm. Uh, the storm was so severe that he was actually forced to turn aside, and he didn't make it to where he normally attended, and he turned aside to a primitive Methodist chapel. And after taking a seat, it wasn't long before he realized that many people were hindered by the storm from making it, uh, even the, the regular preacher. And so uh, this is what happened in Spurgeon's own words. Let me read it to you. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, Spurgeon says, but this man was really stupid. <laughs> he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. When he managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, <clears throat> as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued... And you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey it now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands and shouting as only a primitive Methodist can do, he said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, 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 you've got nothing to do but to look and live. And then Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them and of the precious blood of Christ. And the simple faith which looks alone to him. It's a marvelous story, isn't it? But let's remember what the point I'm trying to draw out of it. Here's a man who couldn't preach to save his life. Could barely speak apparently. Couldn't pronounce the words correctly. His message was simple and urgent. He pointed to Jesus Christ and his cross. And the spirit of God took it up and changed Spurgeon's heart forever. You see, it was not in the ability of the preacher. It was the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and the power of God wielding the gospel in Spurgeon's heart that affected that heart change. 
Friends, I wonder if that's happened to you. Do you, do you know anything of the, the demonstration of the spirit and power in your own life? It doesn't have to be like this, per se. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as Spurgeon's story. Many times, for many people, it's often quiet, something that the Lord patiently does in someone's life. But the pressing question for us all is, do we know the life-giving, soul-renovating ministry of the Spirit of Jesus Christ? That's the urgent question. The Spirit must take up the gospel and bring it home to our hearts. And if, if that's ultimately God's work, just as one point of application, brothers and sisters, what does that prompt us to do? Among other things, I, I hope it prompts us to pray. I hope it prompts us to be a humble, prayerful people, recognizing that the strength is not to be found in us, but in the Lord alone. And that should make us a prayerful people. A people who storm the gates of heaven together, pleading with the Lord to save his people. And if I could ask and beg you, please pray for your pastors. Pray for me. Pray for Pastor Dave. That through the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, that the message of Christ and him crucified through that means by the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, that people would be saved and forever changed. And so the message, Christ crucified, the manner, dependence on the spirit, and finally the motive. Now before I tell you the motive, just, just think about this with me for a second. Why do ministry this way? It doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? It seems so counterintuitive. A weak man preaching what appears to be a foolish message. Seems to be ineffective, so inefficient, so unlikely to ever get results. So why does Paul do ministry this way? We'll take a look at verse 5. He does it negatively so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. You see, Paul understands how prone we all are to put our trust in the wrong place. This person sounds smart, educated. I'm, I'm going to believe whatever they say. He's a really dynamic speaker, so I'm going to give my attention to them. This person has a tremendous following, so I'm going to get in line. Paul has no interest in any of that. He's not interested in extending his influence, gaining a following. He doesn't want people to rest their faith in him. He wants their faith to rest elsewhere. Look at what he says. He wants their faith to rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power of God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. Now I hope if you slow down and reflect upon how, is, how Paul is thinking and how Paul is speaking here, I hope you notice the way that Paul's approach to ministry is anchored in the glorious doctrine of the Trinity. The, the work of the triune God in each person's Distinct but inseparable activity in the work of redemption is what undergirds and defines Paul's ministry. And that ought to remind us that the work of the church, the task of evangelism and, and missions, 
is not in the end the, the work of one man or one church or one group of people. It is more fundamentally the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So don't let anybody tell you, for one reason or another, that the doctrine of the Trinity is a necessary but unimportant doctrine of the Christian faith. It shapes Paul's whole approach to ministry. And the takeaway from that is that although the minister and the message and the ministry of the church may be weak, God demonstrates his power to save through our weakness. He superintends our ministry, weak and feeble and frail as it is, and infuses it with power to make Christ known through the Spirit. He makes it useful so that men and women and boys and girls are made alive in Christ by the Spirit, reconciled to the Father. And therefore, our faith must rest not in men, but in the Father who gave his Son to the cross and by the Spirit raised him from the dead. We need preaching that puts the spotlight not on the preacher, but on Christ and him crucified. We, we need preaching that, puts, uh, that, that, that comes with, with, without any attempts to sway emotions or manipulate. We need preaching free of those kind of manipulative strategies that we see so common today. We need men who, who know and are acquainted with their weakness and utter inability but who confidently proclaim the good news about Jesus because they understand this is the message. And this is the manner the Spirit blesses so that people are brought to a living faith in Christ. And so here is ministry after the Pauline paradigm, the message, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The manner, total dependence upon the Spirit. The motive that every one who hears, every man and woman and boy and girl might put their trust in the triune God who saves. And so let's remember, this is, as a congregation, brothers and sisters, let's remember that this is God's way of reaching the lost and of building his church, proclaiming Christ, making Christ known, relying on the Spirit to work faith into hearts. And so may the Lord bless us with such a ministry as God works through us to make Christ known in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for giving us your Son, and we thank you that together with your Son, you've sent forth the Spirit to draw us to Christ and make us alive in him. And we thank you that you bring this glorious good news of salvation to us through weak human instruments with a seemingly weak message in order that all of the glory would clearly belong to you. And we pray that as a church, that our lives would be uh, patterned after this paradigm, that our ministry together would be shaped by 
uh, this ministry which is informed by the very gospel itself. And we pray that through our weakness, that your power to save the lost would be demonstrated as the Spirit brings people to faith in Jesus Christ. Would you please do that work in our church and in our community, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.